Hey everybody, this is Pastor Dan Jackson with Jacob's Well Church. Due to the spread of the coronavirus, on Sunday, March 22nd, 2020, we started posting online video Sunday virtual church services. The audio you are about to listen to is taken from the video footage of one of those virtual church services. Our hope and prayer is that through this message, God would minister to you, draw you closer to himself, and strengthen you to live for his glory. To watch videos of our church services, or to connect to Jacob's Well Church, or to just get more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Good morning, Jacob's Well Church. I miss y'all. I wish you were here. I'm here in the sanctuary all by myself, and it feels a little bit lonely. Can't wait for the time when we will be back here together again. Uh, This quarantine thing is not fun, uh, but there are a few highlights of being quarantined. Uh, For example, yesterday I was giving my son a haircut, and as I started to shave the side of his head, I realized that I forgot the guard on the clippers, and so I shaved down to the skin And uh, even though I try to fix it, it still looks bad. But the good news is by the time anyone will see him again, his hair would have grown back and nobody will notice. So you can guess which child it is when the quarantine is over. Um, Another good thing about the quarantine is that uh, I can wear slippers when I preach. Uh, I may or may not be doing that right now. Um, But last week I was wearing shorts. So who knows? Uh, So there are some benefits about the quarantine Uh, During this time of quarantine, it's just very important to communicate to one another, to have open communication. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not receiving the weekly well, to please be sure to email Angie Tolfa at admin at jacobswellgb.org to get on that weekly well, which comes out every single Monday. Also, if you are on Facebook, please be sure to, uh, to connect to our Facebook page because we put a lot of important information there. And there's also people that are posting videos and encouraging words. And so be sure to connect and join to our Facebook group. Also wanted to let you know that the church library is going to be closed. Uh, if you had checked out any books or video videos, please feel free to keep those till we come back together. Also wanted to mention that coming up this Friday is Good Friday. And I have two important things about that. First off, one let you know that we will have a Good Friday a service of some sort posted for you by noon on Friday, so be sure to check that out. But also wanted to encourage you to spend Friday as a day of fasting and prayer. Our denomination is partnering with other denominations to pray for God's mercy and healing during this time. I posted on our Facebook page, and we'll also put it in the Weekly Well, an article that kind of describes what our hope is for this time. But it also gives two guides in how we should fast and pray, as well as it gives some suggested prayer requests during that time. So pray about it and consider about consider that uh, if you can fast from food, that's great. If for some reason you can't, there are other things you can fast from as well. So please consider that. Let's open in prayer. Lord God, as we come to you today and we come to your word today, we pray that you would encourage us through your word, Lord, that you would remind us of how great your love for us is in Christ. Lord, we are in a very unique and difficult time. And yet we know that you are shepherding us through the entire thing, Lord, that you are our good shepherd. 
and that we shall fear no evil for you are with us, God. And so, Lord, help us rest in that great promise again this Sunday. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It should also be located in your worship guide. And as I said, it's also going to be to my right, your left here in a little bit. Um, I just want to kind of give you a roadmap of where we are going over the next few weeks in our sermon series. Today, which is Palm Sunday, as well as next Sunday, which is Easter and the following Sunday during this Easter season, we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the most detailed explanation of the evidence and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we want to focus on that for three weeks. And then after that, we will return to our series in 1 Corinthians and pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, since we are jumping ahead in our sermon series and some new people are probably joining us as well, I want to give you a little bit of a background in 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, first off, 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul actually planted the church in Corinth. And after planting the church in Corinth, he moved on to plant other churches. And while Paul was in Ephesus, he got word they were dividing over their favorite preachers. There was sexual immorality in the church that was even detested by the pagans. Uh, they were suing one another over petty things. Their marriages were falling apart. There was social snobbery at the Lord's table. And just before we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul addresses the, this, the, the dissension in the church that is caused because some people are elevating their spiritual gifts over other people's spiritual gifts. And they're bragging about it and they're haughty and arrogant about it and causes division in the church. It sounds a lot like how children would handle a situation. And so all of this, of course, concerns Paul as a father to the church in Corinth. And he writes 1 Corinthians to address this self-destructive, community-destructive, sinful behavior. Now, there are 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 16 is more about final instructions and greetings. Chapter 15 is really the climax of the book. It is the major point, the major emphasis that Paul is trying to drive home to the Corinthians as Paul confronts this messy church in Corinth. And so let me ask you, if you were the Apostle Paul, if you were writing to the church in Corinth, this messy, immature, arrogant church, what would your final and most important exhortation to them to be? How would you motivate them towards godly living and fellowship? Better yet, to bring it maybe a little closer to home, if you had children or parents or friends who are acting in sinful and self-destructive ways, how would you exhort them towards godliness? What about yourself? What if you are caught in a pattern of sin or tempted by sin? We all are. What exhortations of truth would you need to give to yourself? That's what we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Amen. I don't know if you remember the comedian Bob Newhart. But he was once in a skit where he played a doctor, Dr. Schwitzer, who was a counselor. And he had a new client, and the new client came in and sat down. And he started by saying, let me tell you about our billing. I charge $5 for the first five minutes, and then nothing after that. Does that sound good? And the woman, his client, responded, that sounds great. Uh, Very affordable, very reasonable. Seems like a great deal. And then he goes on to say, well, I can almost guarantee you that our session won't last a full five minutes. And then he looks at his watch and he says, go. And so she starts and she says, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. I just start thinking about being buried alive and I start to panic. And Bob responds, has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? And she says, No, but truly thinking about it makes my life horrible. I can't be in an elevator, a house, or anything boxy. And so Bob, playing the doctor, says, so you're claustrophobic. And she says, yes. And Bob responds by saying this. He goes, I'm going to say to you two words. I'm going to say two words to you right now. And I want you to listen to them very carefully. And then I want you to take them out of the office with you, then incorporate them into your life. She asks him, should I write these down? And she starts to pull out a piece of paper and he goes, well, most people can remember these two words. And he says, okay, are you ready? And he leans in and he says, stop it. She says, what do you mean? He says, stop it. She says, so I should just stop it? He says, yeah, I mean, you don't want to just go through life being afraid of being buried in a box, do you? It sounds frightening. Just stop it. She says, I can't. I mean, ever since I was a child. And he goes, no, 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 no. We don't go there. We don't go into childhood. Just stop it. She looks at the clock. She realizes, okay, we still have three minutes left. And she says, I want to talk a little bit more. He says, okay, what else do you have? She says, I'm bulimic. And Bob responds, stop it. What else? She says, I have self-destructive relationships with men. He responds, stop it. Don't be such a big baby. And then she says, well, you know, I wash my hands a lot. And Bob says, well, that's okay. Don't worry about that one. That one's okay. 
You know, if I were honest with you, I can tell you that I often take the Bob Newhart approach to parenting. I remember one time we were at Trisha's parents' lake house and we were going around the lake on the pontoon boat and one of my children kept talking back and talking back and talking back. And finally, I lost my cool and I said, just stop it. Can you just stop it? Just stop it. This is not only the way I sometimes parent, this is often how I want to pastor. Oh, you're addicted to alcohol or to shopping or to pornography or to Netflix or to social media. Stop it! You're living with your girlfriend, lying on your taxes, cheating on your schoolwork. Stop it! You're fighting with your spouse, worrying about the coronavirus, crabby with your kids. Stop it! Wouldn't life be so much easier if this worked? I mean, if we could just fix our kids and fix our spouse and fix ourselves by just saying, stop it. But of course, we know that doesn't work because we have tried that time and time again, and yet we return to our sin time and time again. Maybe you think this is what God is like. Maybe that's what you think the Bible is, that the Bible is just one big book saying, stop it. But the reality is, is that while God, according to his wisdom and love and grace, does tell us to stop sinful, self-destructive behaviors, he never starts there or stops there. He always, fo- he always focuses on our hearts, the motivations for godliness, and points us to the gospel. And so inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's what the Apostle Paul does today in, here in 1 Corinthians 15, as he addresses this sin-laden, broken, dysfunctional church who needs to stop it, he brings to them the good news of the gospel. And so whether you're addressing your own struggles or the struggles of others, let us exhort one another and ourselves in holiness through the gospel. And Paul does this in three ways. The first way is by declaring the primacy of the gospel. Look at verse one with me. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. Notice here, Paul is not addressing non-Christians. Paul is addressing Christians in the church, and he is saying, I want to remind you, remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel that you received from me. I want to remind you of that again. Now, what is the gospel? Well, the word gospel literally means good news. Like when you tell somebody that you had a baby or that it's a boy or that it was a girl, or it's pro- proclaiming good news or that we have a, a solution to the virus, right? It's good news. It's gospel news. What is the gospel good news of Christianity that Paul wants to remind the Christians in Corinth of? Well, look down in verse three with me. He says, well, I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, this is the most important thing that Paul wanted to share with him. And he shared with at the very beginning because it was the most important thing. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received as a revelation from God, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the most succinct summary of the gospel in all of the scriptures. And so I just want to unpack it just a little bit. First, he starts by telling us that Christ 
died for our sins. For everyone who trusts in Christ for their salvation, for who everyone who is indeed a Christian, Christ as the Lamb of God took our sins upon himself and died in our place upon the cross. And then he continues and says, in accordance with the scriptures, and we'll talk more about this later, but the scriptures being the Old Testament, the first two thirds of the Bible, which was written at least 400 years prior to the coming of Jesus. Verse four, he continues and says that he, Jesus, was buried. This means Jesus was not just unconscious or plain dead, but that he was actually dead, that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. The resurrection is often a part of the gospel that Christians forget about. But Paul tells us later in this chapter that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. We are still in our sins and we are dead in our sins and we have no hope in this life or in the life to come. Christian, this is the good news of the gospel. Christ came, he died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day, rose again. It is a message that is so simple a child can understand it, but so deep and profound that we, like the Corinthians, need to be reminded of it time and time and time again. You see, the primacy of the gospel message is not just for non-Christians. It's for mature Christians. For those who've been Christians 30 seconds or those who've been Christians 30 years, we need to focus on the centrality and primacy of the gospel. James Clear is a behavior psychologist who studied successful people across a wide range of disciplines, trying to, under, trying to uncover the habits and routines that made these people the best at what they did. And so he would study these people and then he would write about them and people would, would read his articles. In one entry, he talks about the success of the Green Bay Packers in the 1960s. You see, in 1961, uh, the 38 members of the Green Bay Packers team lost in the NFL championship game. They were, they were heartbroken about, about it. Months later, they came back for a training camp and they were excited to fine tune their skills to study the more detailed points of the game to help them win the championship in the future. But Coach Lombardi had a different idea. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that players were a blank slate who carried nothing over. Lombardi was coaching three dozen professional athletes who just months prior had come within minutes of winning the biggest prize their sports could offer. And yet every year he would start with this foundation, gentlemen, this is a football. Because really, the football was central to their success. If they forgot about the football or if they tried to do something not mindful of the football, they would fail. Ultimately, they would not be successful in their endeavor unless they remembered the primacy of the football in the football game. Oftentimes, Christians look past the gospel and become focused on more specific and minute aspects of the faith because they believe that this is where maturity is developed. But don't be fooled. A mature faith and a maturing faith 
remembers the gospel time and time again. Because when we, like the Corinthians, fall into sin, it is exactly because we have forgotten the gospel or failed to apply the gospel to that area of our life. To give you just a quick example, when my kids are getting on my nerves, either because of their sin or my sin, I get angry. And when I start to bark at them and get angry at them and frustrated at them, when I say, stop it, it's because I've forgotten the gospel. Because I have forgotten how our Heavenly Father has loved this rebellious child. How God, as my Heavenly Father, has been slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards me. God doesn't just say, stop it. But God takes my sin upon himself and rescues me from it. And so if in that moment of frustration and anger and rage toward my children, if I can remember the good news of the gospel, not only in my head, but more importantly, in my heart, it gives me the power to righteously love and parent my kids. Can I ask, where do you need to remember the gospel? Where are you prone to wander? Where does sin lie lurking at your door? Remember the gospel. And consider what nuances of the gospel frees you from that temptation, frees you from that sin, because in the gospel, you have all you want and all you need. So whether you've been a Christian for 60 seconds or 60 years, knowing and remembering the gospel is absolutely crucial because as it's been famously said, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A to Z's of Christianity. This is the primacy of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. If the gospel is the main thing, if if it's the thing we're supposed to dwell on and think about and meditate on, it's important to know that the gospel is true, to be assured that the gospel is true. is, Is there proof that the gospel is true? And that's what Paul addresses in this next point. And what we'll see in this passage is that Paul proves the gospel is true in two ways, through through old evidence and through new evidence. So first, the old evidence, which is Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse three with me. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. This is the message of the gospel. And he says again, in accordance with the scriptures. Twice in those two verses, Paul says this all happens in accordance with the scriptures. You see, one of the greatest proofs that the gospel is true is the prophecy of the gospel is all over the Old Testament. You can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, right after the fall of mankind, when God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. You can think of the Palm Sunday verse in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9, which says, Shout out loud, O daughters of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Or Isaiah 53, which we quoted last week, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Bill Perkins of Compass International writes about how the Old Testament prophecies prove the validity of the gospel. He shows that there's 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled by Jesus' first coming in his life, death, and resurrection. Eight of those prophecies 
uh, would be these. He lists out eight of them and wants to talk about the likelihood of just eight of these prophecies coming true. So one of them is that, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that his clothes would be gambled away, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that the bones of his body would not be broken, that he would be born in the tribe of Judah, that he would be called from Egypt, and that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And so he took just those eight prophecies, all which came true in Christ, and he shows how impossible it is that all of those things would come about simply through circumstance. And he gives this visual illustration. He says, if you took a hundred trillion silver dollars and you put them in Texas and buried the state of Texas two feet high in silver dollars, and you took one of those silver coins and you marked on it and you threw it into the middle of Texas, and then you took a man, blindfolded him, and sent him into Texas to pick out that one single coin. It is logically impossible, and yet it is the same chances that Christ would fulfill all eight of these prophecies. And he didn't just fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies, showing us the reliability, the credibility, the proof that the gospel is true. And so one of the greatest proofs of the gospel are all the Old Testament prophecies written about the gospel that came true in Jesus Christ. But that is old evidence. There's also new evidence that Paul points to as well, which is the New Testament witnesses. The entire gospel hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Again, Paul will say in this chapter, if the resurrection is not true, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is futile. And so talking about the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says this in verse 5. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the 12, that is the 12 apostles. You know, we know the resurrected Jesus was not just a hallucination because the apostles heard Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. Now, we might think maybe they made this up. It was a great big lie to make themselves famous and popular. But that's probably not the case, not only because 12 guys probably can't keep their stories straight and maintain a lie, but because each of these men went throughout the world and went through tremendous suffering and even persecution and even death just to, propose, to, to, to preach that Christ was raised from the dead. And in order for any of them to live, all they had to do was to deny the resurrection of Christ. And yet every single one of them clung to the truth of the resurrection until their death. And the question is, would 12 men, would even one man, would you suffer and die for something that you knew to be a lie? The apostles witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. But then Paul goes on saying, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Again, maybe 12 can, can work up some conspiracy, but 500 people at one time is overwhelming evidence. And Paul says to the Corinthians, Many of those people are still alive. You can go talk to them, ask them for yourselves. They can tell you that Christ has raised from the dead. Let me illustrate this way. Imagine I told you that yesterday I was driving over Tower Drive Bridge and I saw at the mouth of the bay where, where, where Fox River runs into Green Bay, I saw a whale, okay, a great big blue whale. Now, if you heard me say that, you might be skeptical. You probably should be skeptical. You'd say, well, you know, how much sleep did you get last night? Are your glasses okay? You know, are, maybe it was just a floating 
you know, floating patch of, of seaweed or something, right? Like, like maybe you don't know what you're talking about, and that would be understandable. But if I told you that not only I, but also my family, the six of us, all of our eyes saw this whale, you might say, well, maybe it was something else. Maybe it, maybe it was a boat or something like that. But if the next morning you woke up and you opened up the newspaper and it says over 500 witnesses that there was a whale in Green Bay yesterday, you would start to believe, especially if those witnesses were sitting at different vantage points and all of them heard the whale and saw the whale and some of them even touched the whale. Then it would be ridiculous not to believe, wouldn't it? Paul is saying there is overwhelming proof, overwhelming evidence that Christ has raised from the dead. He continues in verse seven, he says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, talking about himself, he says, he appeared also to me. By untimely born, Paul is saying that he was not uh, a part of the original 12 apostles, but he actually came to faith in Christ later. But then Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection as well. And so Paul says, I have seen the resurrected Christ with my own eyes. And so if we build our life on the primacy of the gospel, we need to know that it is true. And it has overwhelming proof. It still takes faith, but over 300 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Over 500 New Testament witnesses saw the resurrected Jesus. And so we've seen so far the primacy of the gospel, not only for non-Christians to become Christians, but also for mature Christians to become more faithful Christians. We've seen the proof of the gospel from the Old Testament prophecies, but also from the New Testament witnesses. And finally, we see the power of the gospel. Verse one, Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, again, talking to Christians, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being Save. Now, the verb tenses in these two verses are very important. In verse 1, Paul says that you have received the gospel. This is an aorist tense to this verb, which means it's something that happened in the past. So when Paul was there, they received the gospel message. But then Paul says, you stand in the gospel. This is a perfect tense, meaning it's something that has been completed with ongoing results in your life. And so they have stood on the gospel. They continue to stand on the gospel, the gospel which has not changed. And then verse three, Paul says that the gospel is the means by which you are being saved. Now this word saved is, is used in a way here that we don't normally talk about it. When we talk about someone being saved, we talk about a moment in their life or we talk about the future when Christ returns and we're saved at that time. But in this particular situation, it's not using saved in that way. You see, saved can also mean to heal or to be made well or to be made whole again, which is what all of us long for and all of us desire. Now, this verb is a passive participle. What that means, the passive means it's something done to us and the participle means it's an ongoing action. And so it says we are being saved. We are being made whole again. We are being made healthy again by the means of the gospel. Paul continues, he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
Paul is not switching from a gospel of grace to a gospel of good works where you have to believe enough to be saved, nor is he saying that we can lose our salvation. Rather, Paul is helping us to distinguish saving faith from superficial faith. You see, there are a lot of people who are certain of their salvation, both in Paul's day and in ours, because they prayed a prayer or because they raised a hand at an invitation. But saving faith is not proven when someone walks an aisle or is baptized. Saving faith is proven over the duration of life, through the trials of life, through the heartache of life, through the joys of life, through the riches of life, through the poverty of life. That's when it is proven if we have truly trusted in Christ for our salvation. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower and the seed. He talks about the different soils that are available and how some some receive the good news of the gospel at first and they spring up, but then but then the worries of life or or the, the temptations of wealth choke it out and they die. And those seeds were not true faith. But there are those that spring up that produce a fruit, a yield, and this proves that their salvation was true. Now, here's the thing. In this passage, and listen closely to this, Paul is not only saying that holding fast to the gospel proves our salvation, which it does, but it also improves our salvation. It doesn't only prove our salvation, but it also improves our salvation because the gospel, if we remind, if we remember the gospel, as Paul's encouraging the Corinthians to do here, the gospel is that which heals us from our brokenness, that makes our souls well when we feel ill. It's what makes our body and our spirit whole again. See, holding fast to the gospel proves our salvation, but it also improves our salvation. Paul continues, verse 9, he says, For I am the last of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. You know, part of Paul's story is that before he was a Christian, he persecuted Christians. He was actually called Saul at the time, and he would throw Christians in jail, and he would approve of their murder. That is until Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, when Jesus revealed himself and converted Paul and and brought Paul to himself and saved Paul. And at that time, the Christians were so afraid of Paul because he had hated and persecuted Christians that they didn't want anything to do with him. See, friends, this is how powerful the gospel is, that it could take the greatest enemy of the gospel and make him into the greatest evangelist for the gospel. That's what happened in the life of Paul. Verse 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, Paul, after his conversion, went on at least three missionary journeys, sacrificing his comfort, his health, and even his life to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And the reason why Paul could do this is because of the power of the gospel at work within him. You see, the gospel is so powerful that it not only saves people from condemnation who cannot save themselves, it not only heals hurting people who cannot heal themselves, it not only sanctifies unholy people who cannot sanctify themselves, but the gospel also propels self-centered people to work hard for the kingdom of God and the glory of God. 
I was reading an article from the Oakland City Church online. It was written by a guy named Josh. I'm not sure his last name. It didn't say online what his last name was. But what's so interesting is this article was written about eight months ago in July of 2019, and it's extremely relevant today. And in his article, he says this. He says, in his 1997 book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark tries to unpack the reason for the undeniable historical fact that from the death of Christ to 300 AD, Christianity grew from a tiny cult of fewer than 1,040 AD in Jerusalem to over 5 million. It's over 10% of the Roman population. And keep in mind, this is not happening when there are platforms to, to publicly broadcast your beliefs. Okay, He goes on and says, Stark tries to look only at the historical and social reasons for the growth. In other words, observable facts that might help to explain this dramatic change in society. Chapter four of the book is entitled Epidemics, Networks, and Conversions. And in it, he talks about the various epidemics of plagues that swept through the Roman Empire. In 165 AD and 251 AD, there were two plagues that devastated the cities and social networks. They were viruses, just like the coronavirus. So the death rate was anywhere from 7% to over 50%. And these plagues were socially and physically devastating, killing a significant percentage of the community. Communities were shattered. But Christian preachers like Cyprian helped people make sense of the death and loss and reminded them of the hope of the resurrection. He also urged Christians to keep showing love and charity no matter what. And this is what made the difference. The Christian community rallied to care for people in the face of death and disease while pagan family members fled for their lives. They fled for safety at the first sign of contagiousness appeared. People died with no one to look after them. And some of them died because no one looked after them. But Christians did not react this way caring for the diseased of their own family and caring for the diseased that were complete strangers. They, they reached out and they loved and they cared for those who were hurting, who were sick. Dionysus, an early bishop, wrote the following in an Easter letter. Easter's coming up next Sunday. He wrote this in an Easter letter. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbor's and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred the death to themselves and died in their stead. A century later, the pagan emperor Julian wrote this in a letter to a pagan priest. He says the impious Galileans, talking about Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And then with these observations, Julian sought to launch a campaign to institute pagan charities. But for all that he urged pagan priests to match Christian practices, there was little or no response. The article finishes like this and it says, did this mean that the early Christians died of the plague, maybe at a higher rate than others? Almost certainly. 
but they saved more. And they rebuilt the communities with those who survived. This was not strange for the Christians. After all, they were only following Jesus who said that who visits the sick in my name will surely not lose their reward. Matthew 25. What will be said about us, the Christians who faced different crises in our cities and country today? What a fascinating article written seven months ago, so applicable to today. You know, why was it that the Emperor Julian could not duplicate the charity of Christians? Why was it that Christians, for no financial payment, would step into harm's way to go and to help the sick and the dying? It's because by the grace of God, fueled by the power of the gospel, the Christians were not only growing into the likeness of Jesus, they were being spurred on to the hard and sacrificial work of caring for the sick. And as a result, the church flourished and grew quickly as that small group in Jerusalem grew to five million people in the Roman Empire. Now, to be clear, I don't think Jesus is calling us to unnecessarily put ourselves in harm's way as if we need to go up and hug someone with coronavirus. But what I think Christ does call us to is to care for the sick, even if it does put us in harm's way. And I know many of you have done this already. But we're called to step into their misery, step into their suffering, and to provide the love of God in Christ Jesus. May the church arise by the grace of God through the power of the gospel. Let me end with this. Verse 11 says, Whether then it was I or they, talking about other preachers, so we preached and so you believed. This word believe doesn't just mean intellectually assented to it, but it means that you have trusted in it. Today, the gospel has been preached to you. Do you believe? Do you trust in it? Because the gospel is so wonderful. When we were sick and dying, God did not stay at a distance from us, but God came near in the person of Jesus Christ. And Christ not only cared for us in the midst of our sickness, but Christ actually took on our sickness and then suffered the consequences of it upon the cross by dying on our behalf. And then Jesus conquered our sickness and sin and death by raising from the dead to give us new life in this world and in the world to come. Christians, this is the good news of the gospel. Are you struggling today? Do you want to stop it? Remember the primacy of the gospel. Stand on the proof of this gospel and be transformed by the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for taking on our sickness and disease and death. Thank you for showing us in the Gospels that you are able to heal our disease. And Lord, we know that for all who trust in you, we will one day be healed either in this earth or in the world to come. And so help us rest in the good news of that Gospel, Lord. Encourage us. Empower us by the Gospel to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a hurting world right now, Lord to check in on our neighbors, to care for those who have the coronavirus or to care for those who are maybe um, more fragile, who if they catch a coronavirus, it would be fatal. Most of all, help us to hold out the good news of the gospel to those that we serve, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And all God's people said, Amen.